Welcome to the KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast Series, delivering fresh insights and perspectives around major accounting and financial reporting developments across a range of timely topics. We thank you for joining today. Hello, I'm John Barbagallo, a Managing Director at KPMG, and in today's episode, I had the pleasure of discussing the FASB's amendment to Topic 405, Liabilities, in ASU 2022-04, with two of my colleagues from KPMG's Department of Professional Practice, Mahesh Narea Nasami and Angela Tran. Mahesh and Angela have been closely monitoring this project, and I want to thank them for joining us today to share their insights on the new standard. But before we dive into the details of the new ASU, I'd just like to kick off today's podcast with some background to help level set. So Mahesh, tell us what a supplier finance program is and why the FASB is issuing this update. Yeah, hi, John. Happy to. So I would explain a supplier finance arrangement as anything where three parties are potentially involved. And what I mean by that is, so John, let's say you supply some goods to me and I'm the buyer of those goods and you give me some payment terms on your invoices, but I want a third party financial intermediary to be involved. So that intermediary is then making the payments to you. And later on, I'm making my payments due to the financial intermediary. So why would entities want to do it? Entities like buyers of goods and services, why would they want to do it? There could be a number of different reasons. The first one, and maybe the simplest of all is, it could be a fee-for-service arrangement. So John, I could I could have many suppliers like yourself, um, you know, thousands of suppliers and thousands of invoices to keep track of. And I don't want to deal with so many of those invoices. So I, I just hire a third-party service provider and basically outsource my accounts payable function so that they can deal with making all these payments in a more efficient manner. There could also be, you know, situations where that intermediary could go to the supplier and enable the supplier to ask for earlier payment than the invoice due date. Typically, the intermediary might, uh, you know, discount those invoice amounts, but the discount rate may be based on the buyer's credit rating as opposed to the supplier's credit rating. And the reason is because the buyer's credit rating might be superior to that of the supplier. And, you know, quite often the supplier is actually willing to provide extended payment terms to the buyer if the buyer can arrange for the supplier finance program. And the supplier can then have the ability to ask for earlier payment from the financial intermediary. So all parties benefit. And of course, the financial intermediary takes a fee out of this and and also, you know, the potential discounting of the invoice amount. Um, and, and lastly, it could be that the buyer is not getting extended payment terms that they're uh, requiring from suppliers, and instead they're getting this directly from the financial intermediary. So that could be, uh, you know, that could be a variety of reasons why entities might want to do it. And uh, it is not a U.S.-specific program. Um, you know, it's, I've seen many companies around the world use use these sort of programs. And I, I know you'll want to discuss the scope of this ASU later, but not all the different types of arrangements that I uh, just explained are necessarily in the scope of this ASU. As to why the FASB took on this project, there is no explicit requirements today uh, in the in the gap codification 
to disclose information about the supplier finance programs and users of the financial statements were requesting FASB to to provide more transparency and, and provide increased qualitative and quantitative disclosures about these programs so that they can use that information for their modeling purposes. Yeah, thanks, Mahesh. Very helpful. You know, you mentioned that companies around the world enter into these types of uh, finance programs. So for dual reporters or for someone who is interested in IFRS, is there specific guidance for these types of arrangements under IFRS? Yes and no. If you talk about balance sheet classification and cash flow statement presentation, there is existing guidance that you have to navigate through to determine the appropriate classification and presentation. But there's no explicit disclosure requirements, uh, just like you know prior to the ASU and the US GAAP. So the ISB, the International Accounting Standards Board, had undertaken a project similar to the FASB. And uh, while the timing of the release of their exposure draft was around the same time that the FASB issued their exposure draft, the ISB board has not finalized their project yet. So I think um, constituents provided their feedback on their exposure draft, but the staff has um, not completed their analysis and gone back to the board with that. Yeah, thanks, Mahesh. Uh, so just to clarify, from a U.S. GAAP perspective, this ASU deals with disclosure only. I heard you mention the word disclosure a few times, but this is disclosure only and not recognition and measurement, correct? That's right, John. This is disclosure only ASU. So if I were to break down the question, kind of I alluded to this before, right? So first question is determine whether from a balance sheet presentation standpoint, should it continue to be accounts payable or should it be transferred to bank debt? And you know those, um, those differences might have significant implications for entities with respect to their financial ratios and so forth. The second question is from a cash flow statement standpoint, should it be part of the operating activities of a company or should it be financing? You know, that'll be the question there. And then, of course, from a disclosure standpoint, um, you know, that, that's what this ASU is all about. As of today, we don't have any explicit gap guidance on balance sheet presentation or statement of cash flows classification. There was an SEC speech back in 2003, 2004, which has kind of led to development of guidance over time. Um, you know, different firms have their own interpretations and guidance as to how to do it for balance sheet and, and cash flow statement perspective. And then if it's a public company, we have uh, SEC requirements uh, in the management discussion and analysis section of an annual report, uh, but nothing in the financial statements. So users were more focused on disclosures because they just wanted more information about this so they could perform their own modeling of uh, different entities. And they also wanted to know where these amounts are presented on the balance sheet. Is it still part of accounts payable or has it been reclassified as part of bank debt? Yeah, thanks, Mahesh. Appreciate the, the clarification. Angela, turning to you. As you know, supplier finance arrangements go by several different names, such as reverse factoring, supply chain financing, and vendor financing. So tell us which entities are in scope of the new ASU and also did the FASB define what a supplier finance program is? Yeah, sure, John. So the scope includes all entities, regardless of whether you're a public or private entity that use supplier finance programs in connection with their purchases of goods and services. Specifically, it's the buyers in a supplier finance program. The FASB did not explicitly define what a supplier finance program is, 
but they did describe a few characteristics that indicates that an entity does have a supplier finance arrangement. One of those characteristics is that the entity confirms supplier invoices as valid to the finance provider or intermediary. And the other is that the supplier has the option to request early payment from a party other than the entity for those invoices confirmed as valid. Yeah, thanks, Angela. Very helpful. So let's get to the heart of this ASU. So tell us about the key provisions of this ASU. Sure. So one of the key provisions is to disclose the key terms of the program, including a description of the payment terms, which is the payment timing and also the basis of its determination. And then also any assets pledged as security or other forms of guarantees provided for the committed payment to the finance provider or intermediary. The other key provision is to disclose the obligations that the buyer has confirmed as valid. This includes the amount outstanding that remains unpaid by the buyer at the end of the reporting period, a description of where those obligations are presented in the balance sheet, and if the entity presents those obligations in more than one line item, they must disclose the amount outstanding for each of those line items. And then lastly, a roll forward of those obligations during the reporting period, including the amount of obligations confirmed and subsequently paid. Yeah, thanks, Angela. Appreciate it. Mahesh, turning back to you. So as Angela mentioned, the ASU provides characteristics to help preparers identify whether the arrangement requires disclosure. But I was wondering if arrangements like payable processing arrangements and, and credit card arrangements, you know, they don't fit neatly into these indicators. So are they in the scope of the new ASU? Yeah, that's a good uh, observation. Good question, John. Um, interestingly, the scoping of this project was always a challenge for the FASB, and we've had some discussions with them as they, you know, went through went through this project. So what they ended up was eventually, as Angela mentioned, defining the characteristics of um, a supplier finance program that would be part of the scope of this ASU. And while there is no explicit scope exclusion paragraph, as you might find in other standards, in the basis for conclusion paragraphs, the staff and the board do indicate that certain you know, payment processing function, like what I mentioned before, if you just outsource your accounts payable function to a third party and there is no financing going on per se, those arrangements would not be in the scope. And similarly, traditional credit card arrangements, although arguably there might be an element of financing in those arrangements, they're not considered to be part of uh, the scope of this ASU. And similarly, you know, quite often we have the supplier of these goods and services entering into factoring arrangements directly with financial intermediaries, where the buyer is not at all party to those arrangements, right? So, so those factoring arrangements are not definitely in the scope of this ASU either. Yeah, thanks, Mahesh. It's interesting when you think about you know all these different types of buyer entities that would or could be in scope when the ASU becomes effective. So I want to ask you, what are buyers that participate in these types of programs, you know, these supplier finance programs, what are they disclosing in their financial statements today? Yeah, I mean, as I mentioned before, there is no explicit gap required uh, disclosure. So, um, you know, practice can be varied and there may not be consistency from one entity to another entity, which is what the users were looking for. And as I mentioned, again, for SEC registrants, meaning public companies, SEC has certain required MD&A disclosures, but they don't form part of the financial statements. So that's the genesis for this project and the need from the users to basically ask for more transparency about these programs. That's what led to this project. 
Yeah, thanks, Mahesh. Interesting. So now some of the SEC requirements will now be coming into the financial statements. That's great. Angela, turning back to you uh, to take us home, tell us about the ASU's effective date and transition and what companies should be thinking about regarding processes and procedures to meet these new disclosure requirements. Yeah, definitely, John. So this ASU is effective for all entities in 2023, except for the roll forward of the obligations disclosure. That won't be effective until 2024, although early adoption is allowed. A couple of transition requirements I wanted to note is that the amendments in this ASU are to be applied retrospectively to each period in which a balance sheet is presented, except for the amendment on roll forward information, which should be applied for prospectively. And then also, during the first year of adoption, the information regarding the key terms of the program and the balance sheet presentation are to be disclosed in each interim period, even though this information will only be part of annual disclosures thereafter. Regarding processes and procedures, John, um, companies need to have a process in place to start evaluating their population of their supplier finance programs. Also identify the characteristics of each of their arrangements and determine whether it meets the scope. If companies have more than one of these programs, the process of identifying the characteristics will also help them determine whether it makes sense to aggregate if they're similar. Additionally, there is some level of judgment in identifying the key terms for disclosure based upon the facts of the arrangement. As such, it is important for companies to start evaluating their processes and procedures and also implement internal controls necessary to comply with the new disclosure requirements sooner rather than later. Mahesh and Angela, thank you so much for spending time chatting with us today. I think it was a great overview of ASU 2022-04, and I'm certainly looking forward to speaking with you on future podcasts. Thanks again. Thank you for listening to this KPMG Financial Reporting Podcast. For more in-depth financial reporting developments, analysis, and podcast episodes, please visit frv.kpmg.us and be sure to subscribe today. Also, we are social. You can also follow us on LinkedIn at KPMG Financial Reporting View or with hashtag KPMG FRV. Thank you.